HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This is Jenna Liute, host of Eating Matters on Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for four years, and even after all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio, made from two recycled shipping containers, because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important conversations from food industry experts about the issues that shape our everyday experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love for my show by selecting Eating Matters in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined in the studio by Nama Tamir. She is the owner of Lighthouse and Lighthouse Outpost, two restaurants in the city that are leading the way on sustainability and labor practices. Nama, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, Okay, so jumping right in. You are Israeli. Yes. How and why did you come to the States? I, everyone in Israel has a, a mandatory um, military service. And after the army, you just kind of travel for a little bit. New York was my your desert, stop. Your, your and place. And then I, I just moved in right away. Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> You're like, I'm uh, not going to leave. Feels, yeah, it feels great in here. Um, and so how did you get into the, into the food world? And so I, you know, I, I, I traveled for a little bit and then decided I was going to stay and went to school. And the, and the sort of like the two things I could do was babysit and work in restaurants. And that's how I found my way to the restaurant world. I've done both of those, <laughs> especially babysitting <laughs> also. It was like the source of income. really trans you for everything. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It really so does restaurant work. Right. Um, so then and did you start did you start cooking? Um, so you worked in restaurants, but like with the when did you when when did you start the lighthouse lighthouse not the lighthouse right um so lighthouse we we started building it in 2010 uh but we opened in 2011 okay and we i was actually more just bartending and serving but cooking at home and just grew up in a very food oriented home Mm -hmm. and so i always felt very comfortable around food but i i didn't never really done it professionally much. So did you cook when you were in school, like in kitchens, or were you mostly kind of like front of the house or, um, mostly, mostly front of the house. Okay. And so you, so you like graduated and then worked in restaurants here or there and you're like, this is going to happen. Well, I, I worked in restaurants at at some point, a couple of, a couple of years after I moved here, my brother, who was my best friend and my partner in the restaurant also moved here. And so we were working in restaurants together Mm -hmm. and we were roommates. And so we would cook dinner together and we would go out to eat and we would work together. And we just found that we had this vision or we had, you know, we had a certain 
way about the you know what we were looking for, what we were after, what mattered to us in dinner. We we used to say you know dinner really starts uh, when you're having dinner and it ends when you wake up the next morning, and we would kind of evaluate everything on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the early 2000s, I think when the whole food movement started, uh, that was one of the the, the things that really appealed to us in, 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 a, in a new kind of cooking was that it was more about how everything tasted and not so much about how it felt afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now like in the world of wellness, we, we take it a little bit for granted, but 20 years ago, that wasn't so much the case. Yeah. And um, I don't know, this is, this is not 20 years ago, but like, like, are you saying the Cronut? People don't feel really good after eating Whatever that is. You know, a cronut here and there is okay. <laughs> it's okay. Um, <laughs> anthorexia is a thing, right? But, like, so you don't go in each, you right. know, in, 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 in but I, th- I think there is, like, sort of, like, transparency in food and food cooked with love. And there's all these things that. And how you, you know, feel after right. you eat it. You talk a lot about that, I think. Right. Um, you know, I'm like, I probably wouldn't feel very good about myself if I ate a cheeseburger that was in between two donuts. But um, Right. <laughs> but that's, that, I feel like that kind of started, I mean, maybe like 20 years ago, this like insane, um, it's not really foodie, but just it, like what kind of, I don't know, the kind of movement. People are definitely more in, into food, but like I think it sort of spiraled and now there's some crazy things. I, that's how, I, I feel like that's how it always goes. You know, there's a the fashion or, you know, there's like a, something's having a moment and everyone's so crazed about it. Yeah. And then hopefully it falls into like a healthy place where it's somewhere between the, the, the fashionable aspects of it and what would it, what would it be in a balanced existence. Yeah. So your restaurants are um, Israeli. Would you, would you describe the food as Israeli? You know, my bre- every time someone asks us, so what kind of restaurant it is, my brother says, I'm going to let my sister talk about that. Because um, <laughs> like, I, I think yeah. they're really more philosophy-driven. I mean, they're definitely... We, we weren't always um, at the home of the kitchen. My brother and I weren't always the chefs of the restaurants. Mm-hmm. We are now. And so it definitely has more of that... Um, streak, Mediterranean streak to it, but mm-hmm. uh, they, they're really, when we think about it, we think about healthy, fresh, seasonal food that really is inspired by a lot of different cooking traditions. There's a lot of Asian and Japanese in there because I really love their flavors, and I think that you sort of pack a lot of flavor without necessarily making things um, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely a good amount of Mediterranean. It's a little bit American, but it really is about sourcing properly, about cooking with love, um, about paying attention to what's good in the moment. And then, there, you know, when you're really using good ingredients, you, you can keep things pretty simple, which is nice. I think, yeah. I think, like the body digests simple things a little bit better. That's that's how I feel about it. Right. So versus like a cheeseburger donut. Yes. Yes. I'm going to say that definitively. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Okay. So I, you know, it's funny because when I read about your background, I, you know, I know that you're Israeli and that you were in the army. And the first thing I thought of, I'm like, oh my God, being like a chef restaurateur is like the perfect thing for somebody who has that kind of background and training because you have to have the kind of like mental and physical fortitude to withstand this industry. (laughs) <laughs> Do you feel like your your like training you've kind of tapped into some of the things that you've learned? I'm sure on some level. Um, I think I think in a lot of ways I'm a lot less militant than other people I've worked for. Uh, Maybe not militant, but like dedicate like the ability to persevere. Sure, 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 <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I, I have these conversations sometimes with um, guests or people that are always like, oh, you're always here. And I'm like, I'm not really always here, but I do enjoy what I love. And so it makes it easy to um, dedicate myself to it. But, you know, when I talk, I teach a little bit in schools mm-hmm. and entrepreneurs. And I say, you know, it's really important to be doing whatever that it is you're doing and also growing yourself as an individual. So I, I'm definitely not always, you know, light, lighthouse is me, but I'm not lighthouse. And so I make sure that I grow as an individual, but if, you know, when I need to hunker down and work really hard, I'm happy to do it. So definitely being, I think Israel just sort of sets you up for this, you know, we can do it kind of mentality. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the ability to sort of weather the storms that are inevitable with being in the restaurant industry. A hundred percent. So, and like, how else, I mean, you talk a lot about like, 
love, you know, and mindfulness in the type of food that you decide to create. Um, do you think that that is like largely inspired by your Israeli culture? Or do you think that that's just kind of something that was like in, inherent in like how you are or, you know, and how you grew up or like, you know, familial influences? It's, I mean, it definitely comes from home. Yeah. Food is love. And, you know, my parents, when they want to indulge us, like they're always like, oh, do you want, what do you want? You want a watermelon? You want to, you know? yeah. <laughs> so it definitely comes from home. Uh, Israel is a very, very warm place, right? The Mediterranean is very, you know, abrasive, but also really warm. It's a kind of like a um, hot culture. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's a massive part of it. And then, you know, it's probably just who I am also. I, I, I think... You know, I had this conversation with my cook today because, you know, you want to have things a certain way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always work that way. And there, there's room for conversation and growth and saying, reminding people of, like, what really matters. And we had a small altercation yesterday between some, someone in the back of the house and someone in the front of the house. And I just make sure that we talk about it. And I say, remember that you come in here and you are making your day and our day. Yeah, and so you impact other people. Yeah. And, and, you know, we can always, we, like, stress will happen and things will happen. But if you're able to deal with it gracefully, if you're able to remember that there's a human being on the other side, that we're not against each other, but we're working together. If you remember that one day you want to have a restaurant and, you know, what kind of staff do you want to have? What kind of cooks do you want to have? You know, like having a bigger conversation, letting people see what what More the awareness. future can, yeah, what, what, what can it be if, if we really remember to be the best version of ourselves? Yes, that's, that's hard. <laughs> I mean, those are really important concepts that I feel like take a lifetime to master, but I love that you um, bring those into every, like every day in your conversations, because it's important to remind people, especially in the city where we like go, 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 and, you know, are sort of sometimes, at least for myself, like single-minded in, in Right. certain aspects of my day. Um, okay, so you are, how do you define the work that you're trying to do with your restaurants? Would you say that you are working towards like environmental and social justice, sustainability? What are the, what's like the catchphrase that you use to kind of describe the work you do? I would say all of the above. I mean, I, I really don't try to frame it in one single way because I want it to be as broad as possible. I think essentially when you're, when you're, when you're working towards the goal that we work towards it it is it's a lot of different things but but they but they but they're all drive in the same direction i think when you're being mindful whether it's animals or human beings and the environment it all becomes the same thing mm-hmm. uh, but there are but there are definitely social aspects of it and we you know i used to say that i was at some point an immigrant and now it's really important for me to carve the space that i had as an Israeli and a, and a white woman immigrant versus, you know, some of the uh, some of my cooks that right. might not have that same ease of like, you know, coming into the society. So I want to yeah. make sure that they have this place where they're respected and protected. And that's something meaningful that I haven't forgotten that I got to be lucky, a lucky immigrant in a sense that I was more welcomed in the United States. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Definitely the environment. I just think that we can do so much better as restaurateurs and as business owners or as individuals to mm-hmm. just be mindful and uh, care about the planet and and then if everything else flows from it right it's how we treat our guests and how we treat our employees and how we treat the planet to me it's all one and the same but mm-hmm. they sort of take these different approaches but at the end of the day if you care about the world then it's all of us it's all of it yeah. Um, so let's walk through some of the initiatives because you have a lot going on and I kind of would love to just like, just like a, like a one liner, um, for each of the kind the, um, the things that you're working on. So, um, in terms of like what your, what your goal is, right. So you have work on like sourcing healthy food, you know, like nutrition, labor practices, food waste, trash. C- can we just start by like, um, you know, just like an overview of like what some of the things you're doing and then we can dig a little deeper into what that actually looks like. Sure. So with sourcing, what, where do you, um, how are your practices maybe different or a little bit more mindful than industry standard? Well, I mean, the industry is so massive, right? It's like, we're talking from McDonald's to Stone Bars and EMP, but we're, we just want to know 
where our meat comes from, where our chicken comes from, where our vegetables come from. We work with Grow NYC, we work with uh, Farm to Table, we work with some local farms, uh, we work with Happy Valley Meat. So it's just about making sure that our partners um, are transparent about what it is that they're doing and that we call we call purchasing buying with our voting with our money. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather vote for companies with the same values that care about the environment, that care about their people. Uh, I think it's one like very easy way to be influential, and it also it also would mean that your products are better. People that care about their product and care about the whole picture mm-hmm. will just have like the chicken's going to be more delicious. The meat is going to be grass fed. It's yeah. And, and dry age and you know whatever it is so it's so that so it's it kind of like makes the food healthier and supporting other people that are doing you know what we think is the right way mm-hmm. um, and it makes it easier it, it, it you know the, the only the only it, it does usually means a higher higher cost right and so that's something we're always a little bit aware of that we want to keep our co- we want to keep our prices fair so that it, there's we're offering healthy food for not just the one percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of like a balancing act a little bit. Yeah, um, but it, it makes it worthwhile. So you do uh, grow my seed for a lot of your vegetables, and then and Happy Valley Meats. Like can you can you just give what is Happy Valley Meat for those who don't? Happy Valley Meat is a small butcher company that works with local farms. Uh, you can trace your meat. It always you know names the farm on the packaging. Everything comes super fresh. Mm-hmm. Just knowing where things come from, knowing that they are grass fed, grass finished. Yeah. Um, and then um, you don't, but you don't serve like a ton of meat. It's very like vegetarian focused, right? Your there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of vegetables. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's I mean, a good thing. I mean, <laughs> I th- I, I, that's how we eat. You know, I sort of like, we do what we believe in and I, I, you, by and, no, your, you and your brother. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and our, you know, sort of like the restaurant attracts the people that that works for. I mean. You know, I go to Peter Luger's here and there, right? I mean, I'm not saying that that's anything wrong with that. This is how I grew up eating. This is what makes my body feel better. This is what I think right. is, might be a little bit better for the planet. I'm not preaching for anything. It's just what we what we think is right for it's us. It's what you want. You, right. you cook the f- kind of food that you yeah. want to eat. I think that's honest, right? Like, yeah. And, I mean, that's what I do at my home, <laughs> which sometimes means that I make the same thing, like, five nights in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's very vegetarian forward. And one of the things that really we talked about early on is that we wanted to feed everyone, every diet, every preference, without making people feel like we're putting them in a box and people have eaten vegan meals um, and not realized and then said oh my god that was amazing I didn't realize that I didn't have any animal protein in it yeah I mean you pick the food you just pick those things but it should that's what food should taste like it just it should just be good and like natural and effortless sort of right not like I need this one vegan food that right or engineered vegan food that's right. like I something a, i kind of cringe at a me little too. bit it really actually like I industrial like a, of vegan food yeah that? i mean all, i have very people certainly my um one of my very good friends is vegan and we really don't agree on this but to me i'm like if you want to eat cheese you should eat cheese but i'm sorry i don't think that some like hyper pro like i don't even know right. i mean cashew right. milk cheese i mean that's probably actually more straightforward than some of the other vegan like hyper hyper processed if you don't foods. recognize the ingredients don't eat it yeah uh, definitely and like don't eat cheese that's fine right. not for me but like for <laughs> not for not in my, like a true yes, woman <laughs> exactly not in my <laughs> personal preferences um but you know to each their own right i don't know so okay so then and speaking of kind of you know the type of food that you that you serve you it's pretty healthy I mean right I mean it's you, super healthy you have a lot of like vegetables and it's minimally like processed uh, we don't really I mean not, nothing's processed uh, nothing's processed we I think we only fry french fries yeah um, which are just like so good right I mean exactly like you need to feed your soul too and french fries do that um, yeah it is it's totally healthy I mean it's local vegetables they're fresh we use a ton of olive oil yeah. It's just clean, you know, we don't feel like we need, like, to salt everything, not everything needs to be saturated. So, I mean, it, it's super healthy. Well, my, I mean, but my question is, like, I always, as a matter of a rule of just for my own, like, mental, like, what I think of when I go into a restaurant, I think, and having worked in a restaurant, I'm like, nothing is healthy. Like, you know, you can have a cauliflower dish, and I'm like, I will guarantee that was flash fried. But, but or, I mean, for certain kind right. of dishes. And so, um, 
I guess like my my question is like is it exactly how you would cook at home or do you feel like you have to sort of like turn it up a little bit to to like meet the expectations of New York diners? It's totally how we would cook at home. Yeah. It really, I mean, we use the grill because I think I think the grill does to food like wonderful things that you can you know like the sa- the satisfaction that you get from frying like that saturated oil. I think grill yeah. gives you an umami. Um, if you use a lot of herbs and seasoning with salt, you can like lower the level of salt. So I mean, there's just yeah. tricks to cooking that can make something really pop with flavor without having to douse it, compromise and, yeah. the flavor. I believe. And butter. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, the, even the right butter is delicious. I mean, we, we really don't. We, I think we use butter for one dessert, and that might be it. Wait, really? Yeah. Well, um, I guess it's Medi- I mean, Mediterranean kind of. Just doesn't, yeah, you just cooking, don't use don't a lot eat. of butter. Yeah. But I, I love butter. We have delicious, like, local butter in the fridge that we just eat sometimes. And we have been, you know, we have been making our own butter just kind of, like, for us a little bit. Wow. I think we want to have it on the menu as well. Yeah. I love butter. It just, it's, it really is about moderation and quantities and how you cook in it and stuff like that. But. Yeah. Um, okay, so then let's talk about, like, labor practices. What are some of the big issues that you... Um, are faced with as a business owner with regard to labor and what are some of the things that you're trying to do? I mean, I just working in restaurant for forever, um, one of the things that always bothered me was the dichotomy between front of the house and back of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it was wages or how we were treated or what we were allowed to eat or, you know, I mean, I think there's so many restaurants that claim to be very uh, forward thinking and care about a healthy food system yet they buy a different kind of food for the staff. And I think that's, to me, that's offensive. You know, if you believe yeah. in a healthy food system, then your staff should be eating the same chicken that your guests are eating. Like for staff meal you're talking right, about. Right, right, exactly. So just just the idea that, you know, someone can even think of that yeah. is, 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 is offensive to me. Like if you love food and you love people, you want to feed them good food, especially the ones that are there Making all the, food. the time. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think there's just like a weird that, you know, people just don't think about it that way. Uh, you know, and I thought we, you know, as front of the house, you get to be in this air conditioned room and wear nice clothes where the kitchen is in neon in a basement, like sweating, Yeah, you know? So at Lighthouse, we create the kitchens part of the restaurant and it's not even an open kitchen. It's essentially an island. And Mm -hmm. so they get to see everyone enjoying everything and they're part of the atmosphere, uh, I love that. I never thought about the the benefit from the other perspective of working in a kitchen that's open, you know, ver- like versus just for the pleasure of the diner being like, look at all that, the you know, theater. That's the theater, right. exactly, right. of it. But I love the that change in perspective. Yeah, they just see them, and, you know, and people say, oh, my God, like, this was so good. Tell the kitchen. We say, you know, you're by the bathroom. Just, like, give them a little shout out. Yeah. Let them know that you loved it. And... Yeah, they just, you know, I, I think they are, they're a part of it as much as, you know, more than, than, than so many other parts of the restaurant. So, so that was one big thing, um, having them, you know, like they get paid, they've always gotten paid vacation or I don't know if always, the moment we could afford to have everyone um, wow. have paid vacation. Yeah, we just, we, you know, and the philosophy for payment is we pay them as much as we can rather than as little as we can. So yeah. when the restaurant does well. You, you know, like everyone I mean, they well. just, they get paid more than like, they've always gotten paid more than minimum wage. And then when we do well, they, yeah, I just like share paid vacation. Yeah. I've actually never, I feel like I've never heard of that in, well, I, I, very few instances that I have heard of that being a thing, like maybe paid sick leave, but that's, I mean, we've, we've always, we, you know, like if someone, cause because our, our staff has a set schedule, so they don't make salaries. It's not actually legal to pay your staff salary, but I consider their hourly wages and how many hours a week it, they work. It's not legal to pay staff salary? Um, I mean, you can pay like a couple of people, but it's, it's essentially to, to protect uh, employees uh, so that you can't give them a salary and then demand they work too many oh. hours. Huh. So you can have, like, you can pay your chef and maybe a, like a sous chef, but you can't pay everyone Because <laughs> they're salaries. never going to leave the restaurant <laughs> anyway. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> like, you're never leaving. <laughs> um, and they, a lot of times, don't want to. Um, but, we've, but we've always, you know, if someone missed a couple of days or, you know, in, in, like last year we had one cook that was away for three months and he's been with us from the beginning, so we just... Yeah. We just kept on paying him, you know, it's just, wow. Because it's like your people, right? It's, yeah, yeah. it's your people. But I mean, I mean, but like, I, you know, it's your people. And another perspective is like, 
I, I am under the impression that restaurants like so many people in the food business operate at like razor thin margins. And so that is, uh, has to be an added challenge and sort of like stress on the restaurant. If you are, you know, you know what I mean? Like right. pay, paying a salary to somebody who's like role. I feel like everyone in a restaurant, it's not a lot of standing around. Like right. everyone has like a role that's really important right. and it works really hard. Like there's no room in a kitchen for someone who doesn't work really hard. Um, so if you take away like one super valuable team member, cause everyone's really valuable, um, that must be a stress. It, it is. And it was, but I think that if you have proved to your staff and really most of them have been with us for so many years, um, that you're there for them. I mean, we help them move, you know, we've, uh, which we, in New York City is like the biggest, the most kind thing you can ever do for somebody. Well, I just, they just, whatever they, like, if we can help, we help. Yeah. And so when that happened, just, you know, my, my night cooks came in a little bit earlier. My, my prep guys stayed a little bit later and everyone knew that we were all working together to like, you know, help Mara out. He's been with us for like so long. He actually yeah. interviewed in this studio. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. With Marianne and Diego, he's he's a, he's an amazing guy, right? And he's been there for us. So absolutely, we will be there for him. And I think that everyone understood from that that like if anything ever happened, we are there for them. And that's it's it, it's worthwhile. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, the, the takeaway is that when when you are when you are kind and human to your people. And you and you're good at selecting your people, right? It will it will pay off. You know, it, we have a very skeletal team that does incredible work, and mm-hmm. so we that allows us to pay higher wages, and it allows us to take care of them if anything happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just and know. everyone works really hard to have a seat at that table. Yeah, I mean, I I like to say that they work really well. Uh huh. You know, our shifts are short. I don't like people working hard. I think yeah. you know we gotta enjoy life. But but they do they do work hard. But you know, I sort of. Don't want, you know, it's... What are short shifts? Like seven, eight hours. Yeah. Not, you know, like no one really Not works like double. Right. Yeah. We don't really do doubles. I mean, unless it's like an emergency, but it's a rare occasion. Um, yeah. It's yeah. intense. That's a lot of... It's, it's so many hours really on your feet, you know? Yeah. Kitchens are crazy and it's hot and it's stressful. It's like... Yeah. Who wants that? I mean, I love it, but for 14 hours even, it gets a little bit... You're exhausted. Yeah. You're yeah. just exhausted. Well, what about... So you talk about kind of the like dichotomy between front and back of house, which I think a lot of restaurants um, you know, grapple with, especially the like white tablecloth restaurants where right. it is like there is just such a wide... Uh, there's such a big difference between right. um, like between the like how like your staff and how the people are treated and their backgrounds and um I'm wondering one of the things as obviously you know I'm sure you know like Danny Myers did like implemented zero tipping um so I'm wondering if that's something that you considered for some some of your restaurants both we, of your restaurants yeah I mean we did we did we did look into it uh, you know I built a financial model for it to see if it would work and it and it, it seemed like a major risk and, you know, a lot of restaurants that have implemented that went back because it was really... So I think, I think, I think it could work, but it would really need to be a shift and there would be, need to be some support from the city. It's, yeah. you know, it, it changes the whole tax structure and it changes people's perspective on pricing. And so unless we really do something a little bit grander, mm-hmm. um, it, it's really hard for small restaurants like mine to do. And so we decided not to not to go with it. And I'm glad I did because I think a couple of places either closed or just went back and I think they couldn't or like lost a lot of good staff. Right. It really needs to be a shift that we sort of all do together. And I think Danny Meyer just has so much pool and yeah. you know financial advisors and all of that people that can really help well, transition that yeah most of us don't have these tools and so it's kind of uh, you're kind of shooting yeah. yourself in the leg right it's a different it's a whole different scale right um so what so it's a different tax structure so well i mean you're you're sort of in you're adding gratuity to the pricing of the actual dishes and so like the sales tax is on the entire check and uh. you know and and you don't get the tip credit and it just, just the way that it's done. So, I mean, unless you are able to have a restaurant in the modern where people can pay $60 right. for a dish and not bat an eye, it's really hard to kind of like 
make sure that people don't feel like, whoa, this place just got so expensive, whether it did or it didn't. You know what I mean? It just kind of like changes the perspective on it. Do you like how I drilled down on that tax question for anyone who is like, um, (laughs) let's get to the really juicy stuff? (laughs) I mean, there there are people who know a lot more about it, but but that's that's interesting because I wouldn't have, you know, that's kind of the steps that you have to go through to think about. Um, you know, in, in making a decision. Um, so food waste is something that you care a lot about. And I recently saw you at the food waste fair. Right. Where you were sampling, you were competing for best dish and it was my favorite dish. Yes. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there was a, a number of chefs from different restaurants who were, um, you know, had like one, it was like a tasting, right? One dish that they were putting forward and like it d- would demonstrate all of the, like how they were fighting food waste and how they're being creative in the restaurants. And, you know, I think everybody there was amazing. Um, but yours to me stood out as the one that was like really every single, every single thing, every component in that dish was created by something that might have, would probably otherwise be discarded. And you did it in a way that was just like a way deeper dive. And are, I think, a little way more thoughtful. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, like, bring to life this, an example of a dish that you create that really utilizes sort of, like, every aspect? And not just, like, cabbage, you know? I mean, no offense to that, but, like, you peel, like, I don't know. It was a delicious dish. Uh, it was with a the delicious cabbage and the dish, mushroom. but it's like, <laughs> come on, right. it's cabbage. Right. You use all of it. Like. Right, right, right. I, you know, one, I think that, you know, to me, all of, like, that's something we work really hard and we constantly, like, every time we change the menu, we are very thoughtful about adding a couple of dishes that actually deal with food waste. So that's something we practice all the time. Yeah. We make... Um, hot sauce from fermented like vegetable leftovers, and um, you know I brought I brought some snacks into the into the studio, and right, so this, we've been enjoying this uh, eggplant yogurt is made with leftovers of the of, a, of an eggplant dish. So we have an eggplant dish at Lighthouse and at Outpost, mm-hmm. and it's basically eggplant that we throw on the fire. Yeah, and so it gets all like charred and smoky, and then we peel off the the peel. Um, which is like kind of like the charred part. And then you have a nice piece of like delicious eggplant where the meat is all smoky and really delicious and soft. And we place it on tahini with fresh tomatoes and a, and a soft egg and a jalapeno and a red onion relish. Which is, sounds incredible. It's a, so here's like a super delicious, almost like, you know, vegetarian steak dish. Yeah. Right? That is just like has a ton of umami and, and all these charred flavors. But then we have all that peel and it also has so much of that delicious flavor. But, you know, the texture is a little funny. And, you know, you're always using herbs for like garnishes and things like that. But then the stems have so much flavor. Right. So we're always keeping them and we use them in the hot sauce. We use them in different stuff. So we basically just grind all of those things together and we add some labne and some and some spices. In a food processor? In a food processor. And then we and then we strain it. And so that makes this eggplant yogurt. So we basically have a product that has a very low food cost that is using something that otherwise would definitely get discarded. Yeah. And it's delicious. It is I, I mean, I've had it a couple of times, um, and every time I eat it, I am, like, blown away. And I, don't I just... Even, she doesn't even like eggplant. I, I don't even like eggplant. <laughs> I really... I mean, eggplant, I'm like, really don't... I like fried eggplant. But, like, I really don't like eggplant. And this, I was... The first time I had it, I was like, what is this? Because it is incredible. So it's totally changed my perspective on eggplant. And I I think I only like the the part that would otherwise be discarded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a good way of sort of thinking about it is how you can you be creative and really thoughtful and, you know, really think about making delicious stuff or really think about how to incorporate the whole vegetable into a dish rather than just, you know, just the fancy part, right? Like yeah. nose to tail kind of approach. Right. Which is what you're supposed to, you know, when we talk about like you know, making dishes out of food waste, like that is, I mean, exactly what you're supposed to do. Right. Using the whole part of something. Right. Um, do you have any other examples of like, I mean, what is, how do you, fermented vegetables, how does that translate into? So just process? all the parts that you would otherwise discard, like ends of tomatoes or, you know, the bottoms of lettuces or a part of like the broccoli or cauliflower. We yeah. just, we just chop them up and we let them ferment a little bit. We kind of like pickle them together. Okay. And then we grind it and we add peppers 
vinegar, spices, and then you have this like house-made, delicious, a little funky yeah. hot sauce, you know? <laughs> and it, it is actually stuff that would just, you know, you would just put in compost, like an end of a lettuce, right? Right. Um, how did you, how were you like, oh, I, I know what to do with this? I mean, I just, oh, I'm always like reading stuff, looking at what other cultures are doing. Yeah, I just... Playing um, around? Yeah, I think, Gab- like, Gabrielle Hamilton had like a really nice Parmesan soup that she made from like the ends of, I mean, there's stuff, there's inspiration everywhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think this was just like some research I was like what what else can we do I always like just look look around and you know I mean so I think chow chow was an inspiration mm-hmm. and you know you just play you I mean that's the thing about cooking you just play and you come up with stuff you have to be willing to fail yeah but other than that you know <laughs> um what about what um you do a lot with tr- I guess it's I guess you'd call it like it's trash you know restaurant um with even like the corks that you serve, right? And can you tell us some of your initiatives with regard to minimizing not just like the food waste, but the, you know. Just waste in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, when we opened the restaurant and we decided we were going to be a sustainable restaurant, um, the first jarring notion was that there actually is no infrastructure. And so we would be, we would have to kind of like figure it out. And and, and what, do you, what do you mean by infrastructure? Um, the waste stream of a restaurant or just in general businesses or even, you know, even residential doesn't really align with the actual waste system, right? We have a bunch of different streams, like we have uh, organics and we have glass and we have aluminum and we have paper, but it's a fairly, fairly single stream or maybe they recycle, um, you know, some plastic and things like that. But it's not, you know, not, it, it doesn't even come close to what we can be doing. Uh, in terms of like how an ecosystem works. So when you recycle in a restaurant, you put it all together, right? In the same in the same bin, or do you? Because I mean, we definitely did in the restaurant I worked for. Um, <laughs> all went to the same place. So is that like separated out after, ostensibly, or is or do you actually like take the time in your restaurant to sort like before it gets taken out? So I mean, you, you the. Initially, I mean, you're 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 supposed to separate glass and cans, mm-hmm. and then cardboard and compost or or, or regular waste. Sorry, um, and then we used to have a hauler, then I would just see them putting it all in the same truck. Yeah. So you know, according to city regulations, you definitely need to separate. Mm-hmm. Um, by the carding companies, that doesn't actually happen always. Okay. Um, and then definitely not the organics and things like that. So just I just feel like that there's room for more um, for more streams, right? And we found we just found we started having different relationships with different haulers. So we work with the Billion Oyster Project, mm-hmm. and they pick up oyster shells um, for the purpose of they they basically clean them and they spawn oyster larvae. Hmm. Um, they do oyster seeding in these like pools, okay. um, and they grow them to optimal condition and reintroduce them to the shells. And they basically have these, like, artificial reefs in the water. And that, one, helps mitigate storms. Right. Because there's some resistance in the water. And two, oysters are actual water filtration systems. So they're cleaning the ocean. They're cleaning the New York Harbor. Okay. So I'm need, I need to take this step by step to make sure oh, I sure, totally sure. understand it. So you serve a lot of... How many oysters do you serve, like, in, you know, in general, kind of in your... Mm-hmm. Is it a big part of your menu or... Um, I mean, you know, happy hour makes for, for a good amount of oysters oh right God, there. Happy hour oysters. Right. I want to go there right now. Come, come. <laughs> um, come, everybody. Yes. It's probably around, like, you know, anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 a week or something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So you save and you collect them, and then Billion Oyster Project picks it up, and they take it back, and they... So you want to make sure if you're if you're going to put something in the ocean, you want to make sure that it doesn't have any bacteria. Yeah, that you're not really introducing anything to the water that will like unbalance the ecosystem. Um, And so they they clean them. It takes almost anywhere between six months and a year to clean them. Really? Yeah, just to make sure that all the mignonette and whatever they power wash them and they dry them out, and it's a whole process. Okay. And then they're also doing this like seeding process where they're growing oyster larvae in these pools. And then when they're big enough, they they reintroduce them to the shells. They have a preference to build new shells on already existing shells or on rocks. They sort of secrete calcium and start building their shell. Okay. And then they kind of like, I went there with my dad and, you know, with the staff a couple of times. You built these like cages and you put that whole thing in the water. And then they continue to reproduce on their own too. So the Billion Oyster Project plans on putting a billion oyster 
uh, billion oysters by 2030. And, and there, there's actually a massive difference in the water already because they're... Wow. Uh, the water is clear. You can see some like seahorses and some creatures. So it's really made yeah. a massive difference. You definitely don't want to eat those oysters, right? You don't want to eat those oysters uh, <laughs> yet, but I mean, you would be able to. Really? Yeah, eventually. I mean, New York just used to be such a massive um, oyster haven, and we've huh. managed to, you know, through different yeah. myth- methodologies, kind of like. I really don't want to eat oysters. We'll, we'll take it back. Hudson. We'll take it back. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make it all better. There's a lot of oysters that are gonna be <laughs> needed for that, but sounds like they're off to a great start. A great start. Um, what about the the Cork Collective? Um, so Ma- Madeline is part of the Billion Oyster Project, and she was a student of a good friend of mine, and she came and she introduced this incredible project. So Cork is a natural product it's also um harvested so meaning when you're when you when you uh when you when you get cork you're not cutting down the tree you're just getting the outer layer which Mm -hmm. is advantageous to the tree um and then unlike plastic or metal it's a biodegradable product cork also has a negative to uh co2 CO2. deposit Mm -hmm. um so it also kind of like uh, works as a filter for the air, so it's just a better. It's a better product for wine. It can be a little bit faulty because it is a natural one, but you know, in terms of like what's best for the environment, cork is like a really good um, solution. And when all the other solutions became more popular, that industry sort of dwindled, uh, suffered a little bit. And then they're you know they were cutting down the cork trees because like there was like less need for them but they are such good air filtration system and right. it's just a, so we wanted to one revive that industry you know so when I talk to winemakers and they don't have cork I kind of like say you know I'd yeah. love to see a cork on there um, and then Maddie collects them and she has uh, a, a bunch of people that she works with like a few artists and they're making stuff from the corks so basically it's a very easily recycled product also huh. and then we have a friend that makes natural candles okay um and so he was making them in kind of like, I think, mason jars initially. And he thought, well, how cool would it be to have him use our wine bottles and our liquor bottles and then have someone make corks from the corks. And, you know, so kind of like really, again, using that idea of um, that. I think the guys from Cradle that wrote Cradle to Cradle called upcycling. So you're taking something that would otherwise be trash or just of lesser value mm-hmm. and you're making it into a valuable thing. So it's a. You know, it's a beautiful jar for a candle, and then when the candle runs out, you can rinse it and you can reuse it as a food-safe jar because it had wine before, so like your nuts or just whatever. So it's yeah, just, and it's a beautiful, you know, it's a was a beautiful bottle before, right? We pick like super cute ones. Yeah. So it's just thinking kind of creatively about how you can maximize all of the inputs in a restaurant, right? Diverting from landfill and making something beautiful. Usually, usually, you know, it sort of depends, and that's where kind of like the systematic things we, we, we I, I talk about sometimes helps, because uh, usually it will also mean that your cost is a little bit lower. Okay. For, you know, this recreation, right? Like if you're making something that would otherwise be waste, right. and such a big percentage of it, you know, and ends up being a revenue maker... Hey. Right? Win-win. Bonus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you do a lot of work to collaborate with other chefs and restaurants, right? Yeah. How do you kind of go about, how did this process start and what was the maybe initial sort of like reception to this idea? Well, when we were looking to be sustainable, um, I, you know, I was looking at different solutions and I thought, and I found some, a lot of them in technology. Mm-hmm. And the issue with that technology is that oftentimes it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And so something that would a restaurant would never be able to have a return on investment on, like a, you know, not that this is such a great solution, but a, a food to waste, which is something that sort of like grinds food and, you know, uh-huh. it can go into the sewage, so maybe better than landfill. That like creates gray water. Right, exactly. Um, you know, just like different technologies are very expensive. And I thought it would never make sense for us. We're also not making the quantities of waste you're that, like, we reuse it. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so I thought, but as a community of restaurants, if we could make that investment together, mm-hmm. it would make a lot more sense. And so this sort of idea of doing things together really solidified in my mind. And then, you know, now when I'm, when I'm, trying, when I'm thinking about a new thing, I, I immediately think about who would be the partners and how can we, you know, who can benefit from it. It just, it just seems like it 
benefits everyone more. It's a fun way to do it. If Who you doesn't want to have friends? Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't want to have friends? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, so, and then what was the, what was sort of the reception like? I, you know, I think everybody, everybody's busy, right? And yeah. I mean, restaurant world, like 24 seven, where your people, you know, were some, were some people originally like, I can't deal with this. I mean, a little bit, it still happens. I think that people are really want to do the right thing and it's also a much more marketable thing. So everyone's a little bit more open. Yeah. You know, we have to do a lot of the groundwork because we're really, that's something that we're so passionate about and people, I think, you know, would really do something, um... If it was, you know, if it's sort of like handed to them a little bit. Yeah. But. You do the hard work. We'll implement I mean, it, but you do the background. I mean, at the moment, I feel like oftentimes that's yeah. that's a little bit the case. But ideally, you know, eventually we'll, we'll just have these systems in place mm-hmm. and we can all just do the right thing. Um, how do you, and I, speaking of systems, I want to kind of talk a little bit about policies in a minute. But um, how do you as like a somebody in the restaurant industry who's really um, making very choiceful decisions about kind of like every single element of your business, how do you like fight back against greenwashing essentially? So restaurants who are kind of making big claims that they're doing X, Y, Z sustainable initiatives, but they're like really aren't following through on those claims. I mean, we don't, uh, I mean, it's hard. I think, I think one people recognize that we're the real deal, which is nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have so many of like our old G's just come in and say, man, I remember uh, drinking natural wine here before anybody even know what it was, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I think people sort of are kind are like our clientele, yeah. right. Sort of uh, rem- remembers that they've heard about it. But, you know, I also think as long as there's awareness, it's going in the right direction. It's probably better than not. I don't really like focusing on the negative. I think, you know, I don't like focusing on the problems. I really want to think forward to the solutions. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, you know, I mean. Because that would be really hard for me. I'd be like, you're lying. (laughs) I mean, when I I talk to students, I talk about it. You know, when I talk to, like, on -on one-on-one. But it's not really something that bothers me too, too much. Just because, you know, I just really would rather... Focus on Fa- what you're doing, and yeah, and and find find the solutions that would make those companies not greenwash, but kind of like fall into doing the right thing. Right. It's our planet, you know. I'm sort of like not really. Oh, we do, you know, we're doing this or we're doing this right. They're doing it wrong. I'm like, yeah. Let's just figure out a way where it's easy and we can all do it right. Well, how is if you were giving advice to a consumer to like navigate those waters? Um, what would you maybe say to somebody? who, you know what I mean, who really wants to support, right? Because right. people can be um, become like patrons of a restaurant that they really think are, are making good decisions. They should just come eat at Lighthouse and Lighthouse totally. Outpost. There we um, go. That's it. <laughs> Full stop. I mean, I really think it is actually very hard because um, to figure out a wholesome system, you have to look at circular economy and, you know, it becomes this thing that, to me, sometimes I talk about and I think, oh, you know, this and this and this. And people are like, holy shit, I didn't think about it, right? Like, it's not enough to buy compostable if it ends up in land, you know, it's so, so I think it is is a little bit more complex. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay, wait, we have to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors, but we will be back in just a minute. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. 
Do you love this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. We have over 35,000 shows in our online library. My name is Jennifer Leutzi, and I'm the host of Tech Bites, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. You can find Tech Bites wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm joined in the studio by Nama Tamir, chef and co-owner of Lighthouse and Lighthouse Outpost. Um, Okay, so we were chatting over the break um, about an initiative that you had, was a big part of the work that you did um, that I wanted to make sure that we talked about. And it was the Fair Kitchens Initiative. Sure. What, what, What is that? Um, so it started by Unilever, and it's one of their non-for-profit side projects. Mm-hmm. And they basically gathered uh, a few chefs and, and restaurateurs and talked about, we talked about the, cult, the kitchen culture and, and really how toxic it can be. And, you know, in this age of food really matters and it, it's getting so much attention uh, and me, you know, and me too and all this other, and all this stuff and, and kind of like what I mentioned earlier, just... Um, you know, just a new lens for, for how should people be treated in kitchen? You know, what does that culture look like? And because and, I think the sort of like French apprentice kind of way was engraved in so many of the great chefs and they kept on going. And, you know, it's such a big part of what you do. You spend so much time in the kitchen and they really, you know, they're, they, they have done a great job starting to frame it and they are really uh, pouring a lot of energy into it. We just had a second session in Amsterdam mm-hmm. last month. It's sort of like, so basically we're we're building these two um, two agendas. One is more emergency hotlines, kind of like when you're feeling in distress. Mm-hmm. Um, aspect for for of it. restaurant workers? For restaurant yeah. workers, right? Like with Anthony Bourdain. There's just been so much yeah. tragic death. And, you know, you think about it, it's such a profession of love, right? And we yeah. always say like, oh, it's a family and and you think how harsh it is like to, to be losing family members like that to whether it's to addiction or to suicide or whatever it is or just like just being extremely unwell or stressed out mm-hmm. it shouldn't happen um, and then how to really train us all to have a different approach to it how to work education into that stuff how to mesh the front of the house and the back of the house the culture of you know maybe immigrant culture or just a different mm-hmm. cooking culture. Uh, with with everyone else, making sure they really do work as a team. And so you talk about like the kind of the, the French traditional approach, which is like very aggressive, top down. Um, do this because I told you, and right. like yelling and like throwing hotel pans at your head. Right, and- <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that's not that doesn't happen in your kitchen. You don't throw I, things at your staff. <laughs> I, I don't throw things at my staff unless it's ice cream. Sometimes yeah. I buy ice cream, throw it, and they have a better catch. Um, no, I mean, and that's that was also part of the want, wanting to have such a transparent kitchen because it's transparent on all levels. It's like, you know, nothing will ever fall on the floor. No one, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there's no, and there is, it doesn't allow for any anger or like passive aggressive or anything like that. You can really, so I think it's transparency on all the, those levels. And really, when there is a little bit of an altercation, we just immediately eradicate. We immediately sit down and make sure that Address it doesn't. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It doesn't like fester and and grow. Right. Um, okay. So, and that that work is sponsored by Unilever. Um, yeah, they're bringing fair, everyone together. Fair kitchen. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Um, well, speaking of kind of resources, and um, we'll get the resources part in a minute. But I want to know from your perspective. As a business owner, are there certain policies and regulations that a you have to follow? Like, let's say maybe with food waste, for instance, um, do you, are, are these in place? And if not, are is there room sort of in your mind? Like, what is government's role for helping to move the needle on this issue? I mean, there are so many different things that should be done differently. From from really helping us figure out a better waste system to you know, re-examining the health department code of like having to use those awful latex gloves um, that I just remember not, you know, that this is kind of like a new-ish thing. Using right? using the latex. I like For ripped everything. through those gloves. Yeah, exactly. You have to. Yeah. I mean, um, like boxes, right? And I every time I took one off, I, I mean, like I was just handling raw chicken, so I'm right. not going to put... 
you got to take it off, right? right? But then it's it's you use it's a lot. It's a lot, and you know, in, in Israel, you're actually not allowed to use them because when you're using your hands and you're touching raw meat or raw fish, you would immediately you wash them. Ma- wash them. Where I think sometimes if you're not well trained and you don't remember to like go through that, yeah, then you know you're actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing. People are like, I've got the glove on. I'm like, but the right the point. The the, the definitely the the. the $10 bill you just took. You know yeah, what I mean? There's people that are doing dirty. multiple stuff, right? <laughs> yes. So, like, how to, like, move. So, I mean, we, you know, we use tongs and things like that. But, I mean, we we go through these gloves. And I'm like, we have to figure out ways where the public safety is considered along with the environment safety. Because, essentially, they are the same thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. the separation doesn't really exist. Yeah. Um, so, it just, I think, you know, things like that or just... That's maybe an example of a policy that is, like, well-intentioned. We want to keep diners, you know, like, food safety, right, right. is, like, paramount to any kind of food service um, business. But yet it comes at, like, the way it's being implemented now comes at a huge sustainability cost. Right. Or, like, every single-use disposable item has to be separately wrapped in plastic. You know, there's just a lot of things that have been going on that I feel like... You know, I mean, if you look at statistics and history, what bad had happened? Like, what what are some alternatives? You know, we just sort of looking at at a, at a wider angle mm-hmm. or a wider range of angles mm-hmm. when we're making these decisions. Um, our current, yeah, I mean, again, on the waste, I mean, we just have so many garbage trucks, you know, and they're congesting traffic and they're causing there's a, a lot, lot of, of waste pollution. Though, right? I mean, there's a ton of waste. Yeah, but they but they don't have efficient routes. So they, oh. you know, the way that the system works is like I can have one hauler, the place across me can have a different one. We all have different ones, right? And they all really? like, yeah. Is it privatized? It I, is. It, it's been privatized, I think, in the 50s. Actually, yeah, I probably should have known that. But um. Um, so, so one way would be kind of like zoning or, you know. Well, well, no, I thought it was Department of Sanitation. Well, for residential, but businesses have to pay for it separately. So we oh. have... Right, so you have so like in Williamsburg and Greenpoint, I think there's like last time I looked at statistics, it was 75 different trucks a day for that neighborhood, which is seriously insane. Yeah, insane. Yeah, that's my neighborhood. Right. So same. thank you, air pollution. Right. Yes, exactly. And, and they're and they're dangerous, and they're and they're you know they like the streets are small. Like it's just a you know just like a not an and updated they, system. They cause a lot of traffic because I swear to God, if you get stuck behind a garbage truck on a one way street, that's like a ten extra minutes to your commute. Hundred percent. Literally back up down the one way street. Don't do that. That's a terrible idea. So but, we're, um, we're 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 we just presented a proposal to the Department of Sanitation. They put a. Uh, request for expression of interest. Yeah. Um, and so it's basically kind of what, what we do at Lighthouse, but on scale. Mm-hmm. So separating the different streams, working together as a community, having the different uh, little companies that we work with all have like a little station. So Rethink Food would have a station. Um, sure We Can, which is both a canning facility and a compost facility. That you work with also, right? Right. Um, there is, I met in a, in the community table, which is an organization that NYU has. Mm-hmm. Um, I met someone that uses coffee grinds to make cosmetics. So basically it would be this place where all these different organizations, the Billion Oyster Project would have stations and they would either process on premise or it would be oh. kind of like a transfer station. Right. And the idea is that the whole station would work on renewable energy and the pickup would be done with. Um, electric trucks that pick up everything in buckets, so no more garbage bags, and it's done on schedule, so nothing is like left on the street. So like right. we know when we put our garbage out, Mizo Premier knows when they put their garbage out, and that truck comes and picks up your stuff and brings it to that station, and then it's either processed on there yeah. or moved into another location. But just every, everything is coordinated. You know, yeah. So you're like envisioning like a literal like a waste processing. In every neighborhood. In every neighborhood. Yeah. That like a school can come and visit and it's beautiful. Once you separate things and they really process properly in like a timely manner. Yeah. They don't smell. They don't pollute. You know. Neighborhood like business organizations are going to have a field day with that. Or or just like neighborhood associations. I'm like, oh God, the pushback. For the, (laughs) not for the greater good. I feel like. Right. That might be a. I mean, it sounds amazing. So I, how I do we so. get the community on board with, with doing something like that? Well, I mean, I, I think it's going to be like this beautiful place with a garden and like, you know, Rethink Food can teach classes on cooking. And they do the food waste. Uh, they do a lot of food waste work, right? If you wanna... Yeah, they basically pick up food from uh, food leftovers from farms and from restaurants. And they um, 
re- like they cook them and they repackage them and they um, you know they feed the homeless and the needed. It's a beautiful. Project. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, have you felt like I mean, what kind of what what else would be maybe the be the role of like government in helping to move these initiatives forward? We need tax breaks. Yeah. For all the, you know, all the people that are doing the good work that are currently taking a major financial burden to do the right thing, we need to give them incentives. We need to give us incentives, whether it's, um, you know, the, the green initiatives or, or paying staff or the, the fair way, you know, sort of like the zero tipping. Mm-hmm. We just need the city's help between the taxing system, the building department, the health department. There are just so many different, like, rents are going crazy. Yeah. Um, it just, I feel like businesses want to do the right thing. They just have such a minimal margins mm-hmm. um, that really the city can help with that. And I think it would also benefit the city and would shrink their, you know, would shrink their debt or, you know, so, like, what they would give back in taxes, they would get fold, folds more in, in right. not having trash on the street, you know, and tourists yeah. and whatnot. That would be great. Right. But yeah, the, the city should should definitely get on board. And do you think? I mean, have you? I mean, it's like that's like a very city specific. These are very city specific initiatives. But I'm imagining there could be maybe some like state and even federal funding. Have you ever come across any kind of programs or initiatives to to support the work that you're doing at the city level? I haven't. But if anyone listening knows about anything, yes, come at me. <laughs> Slide into my DMs. Um, okay, all right. And then, um, I guess, just the, have you seen like enough support? Do you think in, from the De Blasio administration, or is there for the new mayor coming in? There's like a lot of room for. I think they have. You know, I think they want to, but they should listen to us more. Like we should have more of a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been I've been trying to make this proposal happen for. Mm, we've been open for eight and a half years. I would say at least five, sort of like really trying to knock on doors, and it's been really hard. So I, I feel like we sh- we should have a bigger voice. Um, there should be a budget for for like pilots. You know, we should have yep. kind of like a channel where we can say, hey, let's try this for three months. You know, what kind of infrastructure? What kind of space? What you know? How to make this work? Yeah, let's yeah. like let's like try things out a little bit. You know, I mean, it's a it's a it's a big city, and there's a lot of stuff to to try and work out and I think that there's big money in the city and mm-hmm. we you know we can we can if we get the right people involved and we can just say hey like let's let's give this a shot let's try it on a small scale and if it works we can try and grow it see if we can scale it yeah uh, I'd love to see that happen but you know you you really don't have much of a voice as a small business right um are there like I mean are there associations that you can kind of work with small business associations I'm assuming yeah there's the restaurant association they deal with certain aspects they definitely are you know doing a lot of great work um, we have a bar restaurant association called Babar or Alliance rather mm-hmm. um, so we work with them you know so it, it does help in some ways but really pushing things to like a city level that requires um, a lot right yeah um, okay, so we have to wrap up um, in just a minute, but before we do, I want to see what's next for you. Are you going to just, you know continue with this amazing work? Is there another restaurant in the in the process? A cookbook? Like, what are you thinking about? Um, you know, I mean, at some point there will probably be another either restaurant or you know some kind of a project because uh, also you know ne- you never know what's going to happen to your real estate you always want to plan ahead yeah, yeah. Um, which is a very real scary thing right you in, also want to especially ha- Williamsburg oh 100% yeah. 100% you also want to give like the people in the organization opportunity to grow so when you open another thing it's sort of like bringing know, everybody bring, together right. and yeah right and I really do believe in what we do so I think the more we do the better it is it's like the right you know it's the right kind of business that's you know, mindful and cares and, like, has good impact. Um, I don't know if a cookbook per se, but I would love to write something about the sort of interesting mix of thing that we do. So something that can encourage people to be, to, to think about things a little bit deeper, to look at, you know, to look at a restaurant from, from a little bit from an impact point of view, from education point of view. Mm-hmm. So something, you know, something kind of like what the thing that we're doing, we're not just serving food. Right. Um, so maybe it would be like, you know, half story or like a third stories, a third recipes. Yeah. 
Hi, well, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> where you're taking advantage of the glass partition between the studio and the restaurant. You see some of your friends out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's very distracting. <laughs> I know. But, but they don't hear us, actually, right? No, yeah. no. I mean, Shoot. maybe. Oh. No. <laughs> Um, usually the music is too loud for, for, um, usually we hear them. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of like maybe documenting in some way the work that you're doing. Cause I've said like, you're sort of implementing, we have these like systems level changes that needs to happen and you're doing them like real world examples every single day to create a better food system. Right. All right. Last thing, remind our listeners of where, um, where your restaurants are. Sure. So Lighthouse is in uh, South Williamsburg. It's on Borinken and Keep, <laughs> one for a five Borinken place. It's uh, right off the Williamsburg Bridge. And then we have Lighthouse Outpost is a more casual, like lunch spot version of it in Nolita. And that is on uh, two, 241 Mulberry Street. Wow, that was really hard to remember. <laughs> yeah, on Mulberry Nolita. Street between Spring and Prince, yeah. And they're, they're both like sort of healthy, delicious, fun food with great staff. So for anyone listening in the city and anyone visiting the city at any point highly recommend these restaurants thank you so much Nama for joining me today it was a real pleasure pleasure was mine and now we're gonna go enjoy the rest of the snacks that you brought alright <laughs> but before we do I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support as well as our engineer Jeet Paul show music is by Tim Archer uh, huge thanks to Stephanie Latino, my amazing, amazing intern. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever you find them. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.